Last Sunday morning, we were looking at remember the Sabbath day, and today we're looking at the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. For those of you watching us in neighboring states and overseas on our live stream broadcast, on Sunday morning, as we open up the Scriptures, it will be a good idea if you have a Bible, open it up and follow with us, perhaps even a notepad and something to write with. We're delighted that you're here with us this morning, but we want you to get the very best out of moments of prayer and worship and spending time in the Scriptures together. Most of you are aware we have been working our way steadily through the Ten Commandments, and today we're coming to Commandment 5. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, let me begin this morning by asking you to use your imagination. Visualize in your mind a young mom, Saturday morning, making pancakes for her two boys. Ryan is seven. Kevin is five. And the boys know that mom is making pancakes and they'll be hot and they'll be fresh and they're almost ready. And so they get up to the table a few minutes earlier than they would and they are so eager to have a taste of their pancakes. And they're arguing among themselves and mom can hear them talking, of course. And she thinks, here is an opportunity to teach the boys a spiritual lesson. And so she says to them, Ryan... Kevin, if Jesus was sitting at the table, what do you think he would say? And mom answered their own question and said, I think he would say, you can go first, I'll wait. And immediately Ryan turns to his five-year-old brother and says, Kevin, you can be Jesus. Now, we laugh at that, and rightly so, because we understand what's happened. But when we pause and look at that deeper spiritual lesson there, we also recognize this, that when God pulls us into an ever-increasing relationship with Him, that can be an uncomfortable experience, because He often challenges us about areas in our lives that need to change. And over these last few Sundays together, as we have been working our way through the commandments, I trust that's been your experience. You've noticed how to apply the commandments to your life. You've noticed areas in your life that need to change. But boy, oh boy, it's hard, is it not? 
It's always so much easier to point the finger at someone else and say, you can be Jesus, because then we don't need to change. We don't need to do a thing. That other person will then treat us very differently. And so for all of the humor, there's a deep, real spiritual lesson in that little illustration. And this morning, as we come to what Old Testament scholars call the second category of the commandments, we are coming to the part of the commandments that looks at how we relate and interact and engage with each other. The first four commandments have been focused on our relationship with God, that vertical relationship we have with Him. Five through ten look at the relationship we have with others. And the first deals with relationship with parents. It's a passage that's known to us. It's a passage that is part and parcel of our culture, honor your father and mother. And we agree and think, yeah, absolutely. But what the commandments are teaching us is this. Remember the context? God has said to the people of Israel, I'm taking you out of Egypt out of bondage and slavery and cruelty. And I'm taking you into a promised land where you will be my people, and you will establish an independent nation. And I will love you and walk with you and be there with you. I will answer your prayer and bless you and encourage you and watch you prosper and develop as a people and a nation. But I'm giving you these commandments... And I want you to take them seriously, apply them to your life, live them out so that they can become part of your very identity. And so we take the commandments seriously. We don't believe for a second they were written all that time ago and are therefore redundant in a 21st century context. In fact, we would argue they're even more important in a 21st century context, and we're about to see that this morning. Some of you may be sitting and saying, Richard, I think I've been here each Sunday as we've worked through these commandments and I've been enjoying them, but Ten Commandments seems a lot. And some Sunday has been a little uncomfortable for me as I've moved around in my seat and clearly God has been working in my life. But isn't there one commandment that's greater than all the others? Couldn't we just keep that one and then it would be so much easier? In fact, Richard, doesn't Jesus talk about the greatest commandment somewhere? And you would be right. In Matthew chapter 22. A Pharisee, an expert in what's called Old Testament law, puts the question to Jesus, is there, the great, is there such a thing as one great commandment? And he responds. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in these words from Jesus... He's reflecting the Ten Commandments. The first four, as we said earlier, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then they spread out and impact the relationships we have with family and friends, colleagues at work, people in our neighborhood. Then, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so the practical outworking of our faith is predicated on that vertical relationship. We saw it last Sunday. Remember at the end of Mark chapter 1, when Jesus had this incredibly busy day, he was absolutely emotionally, physically exhausted and drained. I imagine he went to bed early the next morning after dealing with an entire town in Capernaum of needs and hearts. And yet it tells us early the next morning he got up and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And it was from that relationship with his Father, that mighty, powerful, re-energizing, refreshing time with his Father, that he then went about his daily business. Likewise with the commandments. When we focus on the first four, the next are so much easier. And so with all of that being said, let's come and look at the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. There's so much more going on here than first meets the eye. Because we know that the relationship between parents and a wee one is absolutely distinctive. It's like no other relationship. At the 8.30 service this morning, we had a baptism. Young Hal. And I know that when... His parents, Ryan and Cara, pick him up and hold him close, as they do with their other children. There's a bonding taking place, and it's a bonding of love and grace. And when they look down at him and smile and stroke his forehead and they kiss him, there's a tenderness. He's their treasure. He's cherished. They love him. And in those early moments, young Hal is learning of the love of parents. And as Hal grows and develops emotionally, psychologically, physically, we hope spiritually as well, he's learning. And he's learning not only from his parents, he's learning from his other three siblings. Of course, when children get to two and three years old, they suddenly discover their legal rights. They're playing with a toy, and they put the toy down, and they go over here to look at something else, and a brother or sister approaches the toy. They rush right back over, pick it up. That's mine. It doesn't matter that I'm no longer playing with it. It doesn't matter that you were playing with it before I was playing with it. That's mine. And of course, parents and grandparents smile at that, and they're learning how to interact. We're teaching them not to be selfish not to only focus on themselves. We're teaching them to share. And in that wonderful environment, children are growing, developing, learning. And you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I get that, and I think I understand what's happening here, and I appreciate all that you're saying. It's accurate and fair. Those formative years are important. The relational dynamics, crucial if we are ever to grow and mature. But Richard, what you're also describing is the perfect family. You're describing this wonderful family unit of love and care and prayer and consideration and selflessness. 
Richard, how does the fifth commandment apply to those of us who grew up in a home that you've not described yet? A home where children were at times considered a nuisance. How does the fifth commandment apply when all your parents ever did was criticize or put you down, tell you that you're nothing, will never amount to anything. You're nothing but a nuisance. You never do anything around here. What do you do with parents with an alcohol or drug addiction? What do you do in a home where there was domestic violence? How does the fifth commandment apply to a child who is abused by a parent? This past week, if you've been watching the evening news, you may have caught a little snippet or two of a Senate hearing where some of our Olympic athletes talked about the sense of betrayal and hurt and pain and the devastation and the anger of betrayal by someone who was trusted. How do you deal with that? Or you may be saying, Richard, how do you deal with the betrayal that comes through in a messy, acrimonious divorce when someone who promised to love you for richer, for better, for the rest of their life, in sickness and in health, treated you so badly, dragged your reputation into the gutter, and it ended in divorce. Richard, how do I deal with that kind of pain? In the Christian life, there are times when passages of Scripture speak into our lives. Lives that at times have been so badly wounded, so disappointed, not necessarily from parents, but it could be someone from work who manipulated you out of a multi-million dollar contract. You lost your job. Life was never the same. You've never gotten over it. What do you do with the death of a child? An engagement that falls apart. Our hymn of preparation this morning, written by George Matheson, was written when he was in his late 20s. He was engaged to be married, deeply in love, and he started to lose his eyesight. And the doctor eventually gave him the bad news to say, it has deteriorated so badly, you will become blind. And his fiancée stepped away and said, I cannot marry a blind man. And one Saturday evening, he wrote the hymn. And he wrote of the love of God and the grace of God. Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee and give thee back the life I owe. 
These are tough issues to deal with. Let me begin to tease them out a little more. And you may be saying, okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying. But before you go any further, you also have to remember that when I come to church on a Sunday morning with all of this running through my head with, head, with an open wound that not only is open, it feels as if it's being infected and it is tender and painful, and I turn up on Sunday morning, and then you have the audacity to talk about forgiveness. How on earth could I possibly forgive someone who did this to me? Richard, I have no desire to forgive. I want to tell everyone and anyone exactly the kind of person they are. I want revenge. I want justice. I want to lay it all out there. Does that describe you? Well, may I suggest this? That as we ease into... What does forgiveness mean? Please hear this. Forgiveness means to release a person from a debt or obligation. It is the intentional choice to release a person from a wrong committed against you. There are multiple classifications of forgiveness, but two main ones for all practical intents and purposes— there is unilateral forgiveness, and there is transactional forgiveness. And transactional forgiveness means this. You sit down with the person who has wounded you, perhaps a parent, colleague at work, a former spouse, and you have a conversation that is seriously uncomfortable. You have a conversation that is honest and transparent and difficult, and you deal with the issues involved. And that's tough. That's hard. And forgiveness is offered. And the person who hurt you says, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't even recognize that person. And I want you to forgive me. I don't expect us ever to become best friends again. I don't expect us ever to have a relationship, but I want you to know I hurt you. I recognize that. I can't imagine the pain you've been through. Please forgive me. And forgiveness means to release a person from a debt or obligation. It is the intentional choice to release a person from a wrong committed against you. But it may be the person who has wounded and hurt you so badly is no, no longer alive. It could be a parent, a grandparent. And there is no possibility of transactional forgiveness taking place. And unilateral forgiveness is also so important, so helpful, healing. And unilateral forgiveness, like all forgiveness, is not you saying it really was okay for you to behave like that. Unilateral forgiveness is not approval. Forgiveness is not excusing. It's not justifying. It's not saying it doesn't matter, sweeping the issue under the carpet. Unilateral forgiveness is seen in Stephen 
the first martyr, way back in the book of Acts, he is being stoned to death, and his final prayer is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Does that sound familiar? Stephen was modeling, giving us an example of some of the final words of Jesus at the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And unilateral forgiveness means that we take a step to release a person from a debt or an obligation, the intentional choice to release a person from wrongdoing. And at that point, you begin to say, I forgive them. I forgive them. And you put it down. Because if you don't put it down, you may find yourself holding on to bitterness and anger. You may find yourself holding on to the hurt and the pain and the woundedness and the fragility. And what inevitably happens is this that you identify more with the pain you're going through than the healing and wholeness that's available. Isn't that strange? Because the pain is determining who you are. The rage and the bitterness and the anger is summing up your life. But there comes a time before the face of God, you bring it to Him and you put it down and you say, Father, help me. I can't do this on my own. I can't offer forgiveness on my own strength. Help me, please, to put down what I can't understand. Help me to put down the pain. Help me to put down the regrets, the misery, and step back, and I no longer want that event or that relationship to define who I am. I want to be defined by you and your love and your grace and the love that will not let me go. I am willing to take the hard work not to say, you be Jesus, but let me live out my faith and help me please to sense healing and wholeness and the opportunity to move on. Living out our faith at times is tough. It's demanding. But if we are ever to move forward in healing and wholeness, that's what's involved. You may well be saying, okay, Richard, I think I know what you're saying. I think I've grasped it. And if you're there this morning and you are still so wounded and so hurt that you need someone to speak to. Some of my pastoral colleagues will be right here in the front row this morning, and if you wish to chat with them at the end of the service, have them pray with you. They'll be glad to do exactly that. Please don't think you can manage this on your own. Get help where you can. Remember the context of the passage And let me wrap things up with this thought. 
The context of the passage begins when God says to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of a land of slavery and bondage. And if we are applying it today, he does not, never wants you to live in bondage to a past relationship or an incident that debilitated and hurt you so badly. But he's calling you to wholeness and wellness and healing and grace. May that be our experience this week as we seek to live out our faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. And thank you for your love and grace that is extended towards us each minute of each day. And Father, as the recipients of your forgiveness and your grace, grant to us the strength to deal with the past to deal with the pain and the infection of bitterness and anger and frustration and regret. Heal us, cleanse us, and enable us, please, to begin afresh to walk with you. Father, hear our prayers and allow us, please, to rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.